Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. The World Championship is upon us very soon, and this is the first in a two-part uh, podcast special looking at the players who have won the World Championship at the Crucibles, first held there in 1977 after being played in various places, of course. And we're going to look at all the players who've won it at the Crucible, as I say, in two parts, and maybe try and look at what the qualities are that you need to be world champion from the players who've won it there. Now, the first... Uh, Winner was uh, John Spencer in 1977, and Clive Everton was there to uh, to see him win it. And of course, Clive he'd won it before, but uh, I guess he would have been one of the favourites going in that year, would he? Yes, but not an overwhelming favourite. He wasn't quite the player that uh, he had been in the early 70s. Um, and uh, there was another interesting uh, fact about it in that he was playing with uh, an unfamiliar cue. He, he, his own cue had been broken. He, he tried to. Play, play, on, play on with it after it had been uh, repaired um, but he uh, adopted a, a two-piece Canadian queue um, turned up at the Crucible with it and without being all that impressive battled through in fact he won the championship in an entirely different style to how he'd won his two, two previous titles mm. And what were his strengths as a player would you say? Very determined match player um, in, in his later career, he had a very good knowledge of the game. In his early career, he was an outstanding potter. Uh, and, uh, of course, it's not that surprising that in his later years he didn't pot quite as well um, as he had in his early years. And, of course, there was the business with the queue as well. Mm. And uh, it, it, rather sadly, he got ill, didn't he? he had this this condition, which uh, I mean, his, his career was quite long, but towards the end, it, it was quite sad, really, what happened to, to John Spencer. Yes, he he, he developed the, this this awful double vision, and uh, the, um, the the pills that he had to take to combat it were almost worse than the the, the original problem. So uh, his playing career petered out. People often talk about Alex Higgins in terms of rivalries, but Spencer's big rival was, was Ray Reardon, who won the last of his six world titles at the Crucible in 1978. Uh, pretty formidable match player, to say the least. Yes, um, he'd won the, the, the championship five times in various guises um, uh, before he won in, in, in 78. Um, he too adapted his game as he got older. I think he was 43 when he, when he, won, um, when he won at the, at the Crucible. And uh, by that time, his, 
his potting wasn't quite as sharp, particularly from distance, but he was a, a marvellous tactician. Mm. And seemed a man for the big occasion. He seemed to, to sort of, we talk about pressure now all the time in sport, but he seemed to, in the early days of TV snooker, be able to, be able to handle it. He handled pressure very well and he handled crowds very well. Mm. He, he had the, the trick of getting them on his side. Mm. So talk about the rivalry between the two of them because they weren't necessarily best friends, were they? No. Um, uh, they, they, were, they were simply very close rivals in, in the early 70s, um, or for most of the 70s actually. They, they dominated um, the, the tournament scene, such as it was. If, if uh, either Reardon or Spencer didn't win, then we, we had Higgins winning, possibly. Mm, mm, mm. And, and, and Ray Reardon's longevity as well. I mean, he, was, uh, he, he played in the World Final in 1982. I think he was in the semis, 85, when he would have been in his 50s. I mean, it's pretty incredible. You wouldn't expect that now, would you? You wouldn't, but or maybe um, Ronnie, maybe <laughs> you, you wouldn't. But you, you can never tell, can mm. you? It, it, it's uh, how great your desire to play and compete remains. Mm. Okay, well, nineteen seventy-nine. It was because, uh, of course, the seventies had been carved up by sort of Spencer Reardon and Alex Higgins, who we'll come to. But uh, nineteen seventy-nine did change because Terry Griffiths, as a first-season professional, broke through, and I guess that was kind of the dawning of a, of a new age for snooker, wasn't it? Well, it, it, it was the first time a boy next door, as it, as it were, won it. I mean, a year previously, he'd been selling insurance for the Prue <laughs> um, and, and winning two, he'd won two English amateur championships, but it was simply unheard of for somebody uh, to, to win the, the, the championship in his first season. Although, having said that, of course, that's exactly what Alex Higgins did mm -hmm. in, 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 in 72. But um, he he came to the he came to the crucible very fresh. I remember him saying that getting getting through qualifying meant that he could uh, he could um, uh, pay off what was owing on his car, which was a, a big thing for mm. him. Um, but he he came through. He beat Perry Mons, who'd been in the final the previous year, beat him pretty comfortably in the first round. Then he won a great match against uh, Alex Higgins, 13-12, very high standard that was. Um, and then he won an entirely different uh, type of match, uh, a 19-17 epic <laughs> against, uh, against Eddie Charlton, which um, uh, finished very late, 20-1 to 1 in the morning, mm. I think it was. Mm. And then Dennis Taylor in the final. Of course, these were longer matches than now. You know, we talk about the, the marathon of the mind, as you call it now. But uh, when you're not used to that, as he wouldn't have been as a first-season professional, pretty remarkable to, to still be standing at the end. It, it, it was. I, I remember him saying that um, uh, in the final, which was um, uh, a, a very long match, it was best of 49, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I remember Terry saying that he, he felt that as long as he was actually in it, Going into the, the the final session on the on, on the, the the final two sessions on on the last day, um, as long as he was uh, level or maybe one or two behind or in front, he, he actually fancied his chance. So he he he, he actually proved that because he really surged through on the last day and he, he won eight frames of the last nine. Mm. He's often now people often talk about Terry as kind of a grinder. They put him with the Thorburns and the Charltons, but he wasn't just that, was he? You know, you can't just be that to win the world championship. No, he had to play um, uh, two types of game as exemplified by 
his um, his quarterfinal against Higgins and his semi-final against Charlton. You mm. you couldn't find two matches that were more different in character. Mm. And he didn't seem to be intimidated by Alex Higgins. A lot of people were, but his, his record was actually pretty good against him. I think he he was not intimidated mm. by by Alex Higgins. Mm. He, he was not intimidated by anybody. Yeah, because yeah. he always comes across. Well, he is a really nice guy, you know, and quite sort of maybe softly spoken. But you have to have that inner steel, don't you, if you're going to be a sort of top sportsman. Yeah, and and he he had it mm. without a doubt. Well, speak, speaking of inner steel, we come on to 1980, and Cliff Thorburn, the first non-British world champion, won that epic against Alex Higgins. You know, you talk about tough guys in the sport. I think Cliff exemplifies all all the qualities you need to be tough, don't doesn't he? It, it, well, he, he does. It, it, he it, things looked bad for him on the first day of that final because um, Higgins went four frames in front. And then fatally started to play to the gallery um, rather more than, than, than he had been. He'd been very disciplined up to then. And then um, Thorburn overtook him, although there was one ghastly moment for him near the end where he missed a, a, a Dolly Brown from its spot, which um, would have put him two in front instead of, instead of level. And he said when he missed it, he said he, he said his whole body turned into one big heart <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I think I think what was most credit creditable was that he, he came straight back after that and he played a couple of immaculate frames mm. uh, to win it I think it was 1816 mm. and of course part of his sort of makeup and, and the toughness that I mentioned was his background wasn't it from the sort of North American Q sport scene which was pretty hard going well, pl- playing playing Q sports for money uh, all across Canada and uh, North America, you know, was it was a tough way to make a living. But, but what a, what a grounding that was! Mm. Because he made the maximum famously in nineteen eighty three, the first one at the World Championship, and he's actually said himself that in some ways he's, he's better known for that because that was a moment rather than the final, which obviously was a two day sort of slow burning drama. And, uh, but what a thing to be known for, you know. If you're going to be known for anything, why not the first one for seven at the Crucible? Well, yes, a bit like the, a bit like the four-minute mile. Actually, mm. uh, everybody remembers uh, Sir Roger Bannister, and, and hardly anybody remembers you know, the hundreds of others who've, who've, who've done it who've done it since. But it, it was a, a, a very big moment uh, in in the sport when mm. it, when it happened. And he's, I mean, he still comes over now to the, the World Championship. Incredibly charismatic man, isn't he? You could see why he was popular. Maybe the style of play. If he, if he if playing now wouldn't be that popular but as a person people really loved him didn't they well he, he got this lovely laid back dry sense of humour and uh, again uh, the, the crowds sussed out that he was he's actually a good guy mm. and, and uh, that, that uh, got them on his side mm. OK well of course the 1980s dawned and uh, Steve Davis came along he won the UK Championship at the end of 1980 and I guess would have gone into the 1981 World Championship as, as one of the favourites, but you still have to do it, don't you? You still have to prove that actually you are good enough to win the World Championship, and he did. Well, uh, uh, that was it. I mean, I remember Doug Mountjoy, who we beat in the final, beaten by by six frames, 18-12. He said, um, Steve can give any of us 14 start now. Mm. Of course, that, that, that did change, but... But um, Steve definitely dragged up the standard because all the other players were saying, well, we've really got to do something to, to, to be competitive. Mm. He was young, he was in his early 20s, but also he was a bit different to some of the other professionals maybe in that he was taking it ultra seriously. Snooker was everything to him, wasn't it, from a young age, and, and he poured everything he had into it. Well, he, he, he did, and <clears throat> he was the first world champion to, to be... Um, well... 
I'm almost tempted to use the word obsessed with, with, with technique, which is, of course, the, the, the foundation uh, of excellence at, at, at snooker. Um, most other, well, in fact, all other um, previous world champions had always played pretty well with the technique they were born with. He was always looking to see how he could improve it. Mm. He also had Barry Hearn in his corner. And, of course, when he, win, when he won the World Championship in 1981, Famously, Barry sort of ran across the stage and nearly knocked him into the front row. Very important to have not just, not just a cheerleader, but someone who's actually looking after things off the table. Well, it, it enabled Steve to have tunnel vision on playing. Mm. Simple as that. Mm. But, of course, a year later, he goes there as defending champion and loses 10-1 to Tony Knowles. A lot of people listening to this now wouldn't have been alive, possibly, when, when that happened. How, how big a shock was that? Was, was, was it a, a really big shock? Well, it, it was on past results, but uh, there was a very simple explanation. It was that in, in his year as champion, uh, Steve had um, uh, really worn himself out going here, there and everywhere, exhibitions, uh, e e exhibitions, personal appearances, everything. In fact, on the, the afternoon of the evening of his first session against Knowles, he was actually doing a book signing mm -hmm. in, in a Sheffield... Bookshop. So, uh, I think he was just internally totally, totally shot. He had nothing left. Mm. Did he get better as the eighties went on? Because I guess standards improve all the time. Did he have to improve, or, or was he just so far in front that he was sort of so hard to catch anyway? I think his form in the early eighties, in, in terms of, of um, break making, general dominance, uh, he, he never improved on that. But where where there's always scope for improvement, uh, whoever you are, is in the is in the, the the tactical side of the game, the knowledge, the experience, or all, all the the consistency, or all, mm. all, all the all these things. So I don't think his best was was ever very much better than it had been in, in the early eighties. But uh, his his standard performance, you know, was always very very formidable. Mm. 1989, he won his sixth world title. He beat John Parrott 18-3, you know, the biggest ever margin of victory at the Crucible. And you look at that and you think, well, he's never going to lose here. But actually, he was never in another final. I mean, he said himself he thought his game was beginning to decline, which I think people watching might not have picked up on, but maybe there was something in that. Yes, I remember a, 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 a couple of years after that, um, he, he, lost to, he lost to Jimmy White in the final of the Canadian Masters, and um, I think it was 9-4, and, and he said to me, that th this is the day the, the rubber band came off. <laughs> uh, I mean, it shows that great champion as he, uh, uh, as he was, how, how fragile, really, it's all held together. They're, they're only human, after all. And um, it, 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 was, it was surprising that after 89, he, he, he never won it again. And 18-3 was a, a fabulous margin. But let's not forget that John Parrott was absolutely shot by the time he, he got to the final. He'd been in the, the finals or semi-finals of practically every tournament on the circuit up to then. And he, he was absolutely snookered out by the time he, he had to face Davis in the final. Mm. But Steve, he kept turning up and, and trying to qualify. He did qualify a couple of times and got back in the top 16. His, his sort of pure love for snooker sort of helped him continue, didn't it? Because there was a case for saying maybe in the late 90s, for example, well, I'm not going to get any better here, I could pack it in. But that was never in his thoughts. 
Well, I think that the, the, the great champions, uh, uh, there comes a time when they all have to ask themselves uh, a question. Am I going to enjoy it? And am I going to be able uh, to take disappointment more frequently? And in Davis's case, he, he, he could. He did love the game and he was successful enough, um, uh, certainly for a few years, to... To, to to enjoy the struggle, but of course there does come a time when you, you you're just losing too often, and it's just not worth putting yourself through it. Yeah, that one last hurrah in the uh, at the 2010 World Championship, he beat John Higgins in the in the second round, completely unexpected. I mean, that was a, a huge shock because Higgins was in form. Davis didn't seem to have any form, and uh, and at the end, I remember he sort of went outside to go up to the BBC studio and and was treated like a conquering hero. People were just sort of bowing down to him virtually, and 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 it just showed the respect that the British public had for him. A lot of those people, maybe thirty years before, would have been hoping he would lose, but they kind of almost grudgingly thought, "No, actually, you know, you've earned our respect." Well, things had turned around, <laughs> hadn't they? I mean, he he was so dominant in the early eighties that uh, I think that that the casual. Um, a viewer of snooker did uh, want to have a, a, a little bit of a more rapid turnover of, <laughs> of, of, of winners, but he, he hadn't won anything for for a long time. He hadn't won a big match for a long time, and um, uh, of course, the, the British public they they love an underdog, and by that time he'd become an underdog after being an overdog for so long. <laughs> well, what the British public also like uh, is a sort of rebel, and, and that was certainly Alex Higgins. He world champion in 1972, and then 10 years later won again at the Crucible. I mean, we, we could spend all day talking about Alex Higgins, but that was uh, one of the great moments in snooker, I guess, wasn't it? Particularly people remember at the end when he beckons his, his wife and baby onto the stage. You know, th those are memories that, link, that linger. Well, it, it, it was just... Sheer, sheer drama, sheer sporting drama. Uh, my, my chief memory will always remain the 69 clearance he made against Jimmy White uh, in the semi-finals to, 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 save, to save the match. I remember vividly, he almost missed the first shot. It was ever so easy, but, but he almost missed it. And instead of leaving himself a, a straightforward pink to middle, he, he, he had to take... Uh, the green from its spot from, from distance and he, he just never thought twice swept it in developed a red just went on and on I mean that was that was just great I, I think it, it's probably the most reprised item mm. of BBC footage there is and quite rightly so mm. what was it like being particularly the world championship but any tournament when, when Alex Higgins was around because certainly in the 80s you know he was front page news wasn't he I mean he, everyone wanted a piece of him what was it like when he was kind of in the tournament and all of that intrigue going on as well. Well, there's always a lot of excitement, but in terms of a, a, a direct relationship with, with with Higgins, I was always wary because uh, <laughs> he, he could he could be very unpleasant indeed. Mm -hmm. But but an incredibly exciting player, wasn't he? I mean, he did. He, you watch him now on on YouTube and. He did play a different game, just the way his body sort of reacted when he played. It was something new. Yes, well, who could who could uh, replicate that sort of style? Mm. Uh, and there again, you know, the public the public loves loves a rebel. It loves the unorthodox. It loves um, people who um, who share their own faults. I mean, he 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 drank a lot. He gambled a lot. You know, like a, a, a lot of his a, a, a lot of his supporters. Mm. Um, mm. 
so in that sense he, he was every man but uh, in reality as far as snooker was concerned he was one on his own yeah and there was a dark side as well i mean the rack pack that was on the bbc iplayer recently it ends actually with an entirely full scene at the crucible where steve davis you know alex is, is lost to steve james and he sat there and steve davis goes and sort of helps about the arena that did not happen what did happen and it happens just after the rack pack ends is he goes into a press conference assaults a tournament official and then sits down and, and sort of rambles on about you know how he's going to retire and how the game's corrupts and all the rest of it. Do, do, do you have any memories of that? Because it sounded pretty unpleasant. It, well, it, it, it was un unpleasant and extraordinary. Mm. I, 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 was, I was there in, 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 that, uh, in that press conference uh, and uh, he just sort of let fly with every accusation he, he, he could think of. He knew he was going to be suspended anyway, mm. uh, so he, he thought he might as well give it a real go. Mm. Okay, well... The, the next uh, player we're going to talk about is another Northern Irishman, different character, but uh, equally as I guess determined. Dennis Taylor. We know the circumstances. I think everybody knows the circumstances by which Dennis won in 1985. So let's rather than dwell on that again, let's talk about him as a man because it's interesting. The sort of the way he comes across and the sort of the personality that in the public mind is that he's this sort of jovial Irishman, always joking and laughing. He was hard as nails as a player, wasn't he? Very, very gritty. Um, uh, at his best, he could score very fluently. I remember he made three centuries in four frames in uh, uh, in a Canadian Masters final uh, against uh, against Steve Davis. Um, but but the '85 final um, for quality w wasn't a great match. Not a single century um, in in that in that final. And they were both both Steve and Dennis were both grinding it out. Mm. Um, I think Steve was trying not to lose. Dennis was hanging on, mm. uh, and it just went all the way until that incredible climax. Mm. And inevitably, his career is defined by that. But I mean, he did he did win Thomas after that. He won the Masters. He beat he beat Alex Higgins, and and I guess just became a sort of snooker personality. In a way, maybe it was almost irrelevant what he won. People were always going to remember him. He was very distinctive. He had the glasses and everything. Personality I mentioned, he did, and he did well for himself, didn't he? You know, he, he would always put himself forward on TV shows and and became, I guess, a personality. Yes, yeah, I, I think the the most the, the single most identifiable feature about him was the the, the upside down glasses, mm. uh, and those were adopted so that he could actually see through the centre of the lens mm. because he he wore them high on his forehead. And of course, they're standard issue now for mm. for snooker players who need specs. Mm. Although, actually, I think I'm right in saying that, that Martin Gould won the German Masters this year. I think he Dennis was actually the last player to win a ranking event in glasses, and of course, Martin just wears. A standard pair. No one quite knows how that works. But anyway, maybe that's for another time. When when Martin's world champion, we'll, we'll discuss that maybe. Well, of course, 1986, uh, Steve Davis in the final again, and I, uh, maybe there was an expectation that, OK, 85 was a blip, we'll carry on with the, the Davis years. He came up against Joe Johnson, who was not a name known to most of the sporting public, and Joe played the best snook of his life at the World Championship. Well, he wasn't intimidated by Steve. Um, when they were amateurs, Joe had been the England captain while... Steve was in the team, so mm. he, 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 he didn't think that, oh, I'm playing this great star. He thought, oh, I'm playing Steve, who I know pretty well. Um, and that was a tournament in which it, it took more out of Steve to get to the final than it did Joe. And um, still, Steve was an overwhelming favourite, but Joe got off to a good start. I think, I think he was 
3-1 at the first mid-session interval and I was commentating and um, I said and are people starting to think of the unthinkable <laughs> uh, and of course it, the unthinkable happened and by quite a wide margin 18-12 it's shown I guess in the quarterfinals that it, it could happen because mm-hmm. down to Terry Griffiths and, and, and won the last four frames to, to beat him and to do that against someone like Terry who I guess would have been maybe the favourite in that half to reach the final showed something didn't it well, Joe himself said that that's when he realised he was a player. Mm. Uh, and it, it, he was three down, four to play. And the way he played in those last four frames was just about un- unstoppable. Mm. Um, so um, I, think, I think Joe would like to bottle those four frames and carry them around with him. Yeah, <laughs> but because, because he'd sort of come from nowhere, he was completely unprepared to be world champion he didn't understand I think the extent to which people wanted a piece of him and that definitely impacted the season he had and I'm sure there was an expectation among snooker people that going to the 1987 world championship he'd probably fall flat and he very nearly did in the first round he won 10-9 but then all of a sudden he's in the final again yes I, 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 think, I think Joe's wife uh, put it very well uh, he, he, he loves competing but but when the lights go go out, he, he just wants to go home. Mm. And, and the, in the year that he was champion, he was never really permitted to do that. I mean, he even had photographers shinning up his drain pipe at, at home. I mean, imagine mm. uh, to someone uh, who, who'd led uh, uh, just a, uh, an ordinary private life uh, uh, up to then. Um, so in his year as champion, he, he hardly won a match worth talking about. But Again, he came good at the uh, at the crucible, but in, in, although he, he did his best in the final, in a way, I, I don't think he was all that sorry to lose because mm. he he knew what it would mean if he won. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, of course, Davis then did go back to winning ways. Won three more, eighty-seven, eighty-eight, eighty-eight, eighty-nine, and then the 1990s dawn. We're going to end this half of uh, our world championship sort of preview, looking at the champions, with of course Stephen Hendry. 1990 became the youngest world champion at the age of 21 and uh, he was something very special wasn't he because uh, of course he'd observed all the champions we've been talking about in the 80s but he played a different game he played a very attacking game well th- th- there was one shot in particular that that uh, Hendry uh, developed more than any other player and that was uh, into the pack from the blue hitting the pink at the at the apex of the bunch full ball uh, when Previously, when players went into the bunch, they thought, well, you know, as long as I don't slide off the the, the edges and, and go in off, you know, that that's okay. But he realised what what could be what could be done, and he he played that shot with uncanny consistency. Um, he, he also, I think, had had a sense of destiny. He, he knew he got the, uh, the the ability to win it, and I remember. In, in, only a few minutes after he had won it, that he he was still utterly self-possessed. Mm. He, he he'd come to win it, and he had, mm. and that was that. Yeah, I mean, he, just fearless, really. And maybe you're just born with that. I don't know. It it seems extraordinary to, as a young man. I mean, he's still you know only 21 then, and because he'd won tournaments before then, like you say, to just believe basically almost this is my right to win this. Well, the, 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 there was something of that mm. about, uh, uh, about him. Uh, I mean, in the in the modern era, everybody drools over Ronnie O'Sullivan and what he can do, uh, and 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 rightly so. But I don't think we should ever forget just how good 
Hendry was at peak. I mean, he was a break-making machine. Mm. And, of course, he also had the great rivalry in the 90s with Jimmy White, you know, four-world finals, and, and, of course, he won them all. And, and that was uh, that was a big deal for snooker purely because, A, they were both great players and great to watch, but also you had the different personalities that people could identify with. If you were watching, you're either for Jimmy, which most people were, or you're for Hendry. Well, well, Jimmy Jimmy's vices were shared by a, a, a large proportion of the general public again you know drinker car player mm. late nights you know and they identify with that and the, I think there's a there's a there's a feeling that it would be nice if once in a while um a player could could have it all he he, he could he could live uh, just as he wished off table and still win something big mm. uh, and Hendry was there to disprove it <laughs> <laughs> which he certainly did well of course he went on winning them seven world titles in the 90s but uh, didn't win one after the age of 30 uh, he got to another final 2002 lost, lost in a decider to Peter Ebden but uh, there's almost a sense that he was sort of burnt out by, by the time he got to 30 because he, he, he was just winning and winning and winning and maybe when he broke the record I'm not saying there was a lack of motivation but there was a lack of something, or was it just that there were other players coming along and they, they raised the standards? Well, maybe a, a fractional loss of, of, of motivation. Uh, I think he was still motivated quite a bit, but I think you know other players coming along and that, that that's pressure. You look, you you've been king for so long. You you're looking over your shoulder at the the young pretenders. You. you 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 want to go on being king, but can you keep on putting in the the drive, the effort, the sheer toil of practice to to um, uh, to, to do that? And and he did admit that in the latter part of his career, practice did become a little bit more of a chore. And when you stop loving what you do, all of it then that is a danger signal. Mm. It's hard to retire for any sportsman, but in the end, I thought he retired with a lot of dignity. He basically just said, that's it, goodbye. Yeah, he retired having reached the World Championship quarter-final, mm. which is... And made a maximum. And made a maximum, <laughs> which, is, which is a very decent achievement yeah. for anybody. I actually thought that that he retired a, 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 little, a little too soon because... The great champions then have this problem of filling that hole in their life, which snooker um, has filled for, for, for so long. But it's a personal decision, it's up to him. And as you say, he did retire with, with great dignity at what he thought was the right moment. Mm. Well, Stephen Hendry ended the millennium as, as world champion, and he's also ended this podcast. Uh, but we'll be back next week with Phil Yates to talk about the remaining Crucible champions. So thank you, Clive, and thanks everybody for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.